Well, good morning, New Hope. It is good to see you. If you'd like to take out your outline that Kimberly just referred to, the details she was referring to are on the back of your outline. So when you go home, you'll actually have those things and you can follow up yourselves. I mean, you guys don't have to click hyperlinks. Dr. Victor Frankel. Who's heard of him? Anybody? Okay, some of you have. He was a very bold and he's a very courageous Jew who became a prisoner during the Holocaust. And he endured years of indignity and humiliation by the Nazis before he was finally liberated. Now at the beginning of his ordeal, he had his home, his family, his possessions, his freedom, including his watch and his ring taken from him. He had his head shaved and he was stripped of his clothes, stripped naked, standing before the glaring lights of the German high command. And on top of that, he was falsely accused and interrogated relentlessly. He had nothing. By the way, we see things, right? Nothing. Down to the bare bones, so to speak. But he suddenly realised that's not true. That is not true. There was at least one thing that no one could ever take from him. You know what that was? Viktor Frankl realised that he still had the power to choose his own attitude. He had the power. He had the ability to choose bitterness or forgive. That was his choice. He had the ability to give up or go on. He could choose hatred or hope. He could have the determination to go on or be paralysed by self-pity. Attitude is a small thing that has a massive difference in our lives. Massive. Now words cannot adequately convey the incredible uh, implications that attitude has to our life. A famous person that I listened to quite a lot said this. He said, the longer I live the more I am convinced that life is only 10% of what actually happens to us and 90% how we respond. So this morning, I want to look at the value of attitudes. I want to get some focus on this from the Word of God. Perhaps the single most significant decision I can make on a day-to-day basis is my choice of my attitude. Because it's more important than what's happened to me in my past. And it's more important than my education. I can have all the education in the world and if my attitude sucks, life sucks. Huh? It's more important than my bank. Well, I can have all the money in the world, but if my attitude is down in the dumps, life is very glum. It's more important than my past successes or failures or fame. It's more important attitude than my pain. It's more important than what other people think about me because I can't control that or even what they say about me. I can't control that either. It's more important than my circumstances or my possessions. That is very, very important. And I think we have undervalued this thing called attitude, which the Bible highly encourages us to get aligned. Now, when my attitudes are right, there is no barrier too high. There is no problem too big. There is no dream too extreme. When my attitude's right, none. What happens is, 
My attitude makes a difference between keeping going or crippling my progress. Listen carefully to that. It, it fires my fire or it assaults my hope. When you have a terrible attitude, it will assault your hope. It'll drag you down. When my attitudes are right, there's no challenge too great. So, yet, on the other hand, we must admit, if we're really honest today, that we spend more of our time concentrating and fretting over problems, over things that we have lost, things that went bad, things that didn't go as well as we should have gone, We spend time worrying and concentrating on things that cannot be changed in our past. We take more of our time than we do on giving attention to the one thing that we can choose. And the one thing we can choose today is our attitude. So stop and think for a moment about the things that normally during your week suck up your attention and your energy. All of these are often inescapable and often demoralising. Depending upon the stage of life, some of you might find the tick-tock, tick-tock of the clock inescapable. And it affects your attitude to life. Some of you, it's the weather. How often do we talk about the weather? What can you do about it? (laughs) The temperature's too cold. Boy, it's too hot, too humid. The rain. People's reactions, especially to criticism. Here's another one that we often talk a lot about. We often talk about who won or lost the game. Something very small, we can't control it. But yet, when New Zealand loses, boy, the whole nation goes into mourning, (laughs) right? Another one we talk about, ridiculously, the cost of gas. Man, did you see the price of that? Boy, I got a good deal on that. Ridiculous, inane things. Delays in the waiting room. Boy, I waited for hours. Or on-the-job irritations. That can affect your attitude. Think about work. People with smelly attitudes. (laughs) You know, stinking thinking. Disappointments. And boy, how are you? What's the standard answer? Busy. We always talk about our workload. And we waste a staggering amount of energy on fighting the inevitable. To make matters worse, we're the ones who grow often sour, who become twisted and negative and tight-fisted fighters. And some actually, when their attitude gets completely smashed, lose hope and actually die from a broken heart. Those of you who are doctors and psychologists know about the broken heart syndrome. You just Google it. The classic study... It's called a broken heart syndrome. The classic one is researchers studied the, more, uh, the mortality rate of 4,500. That's a reasonable size study of widowers within six months of their wives' deaths. They studied that. And they compared it to another group um, with other men of the same age and the widowers had a mortality rate 40% higher. Go read it. They died of a broken heart. Now, in a short little letter that Paul wrote to these group of Christians at a a place called Philippi, he's going to get after what we're talking about today. He's going to get after something called attitudes. And although the church at Philippi was a fairly happy little flock, the Philippians had a few personality skirmishes that could have derailed them and hindered their momentum. And a couple of folks were causing discord by their attitudes and their actions. You can read that in the book of Philippians. 
Why? Well, because they desired recognition and fame and distinction. They weren't from pure motives though, but from merely selfish ambition. Now, knowing how counterproductive that stinking thinking was, Paul gets right after their attitudes by asking them four rhetorical questions at the start. He says to them here in Philippians 2.1, he says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, well, Paul knows, of course there is. It's a rhetorical question. If there is, if there's any comfort from his love, well, Christ's love should unite believers in love. Of course that should happen. If there's any partition basin in the spirit. In other words, one spirit, one body, one love. Therefore, no divisions. Any, if there's any affection and sympathy, that's concern for one another, that unifies the body of believers. Now, Paul pleads to them to then tap into the positive, encouraging storehouse of God. How? By this. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, because of their common experience in Christ and their common fellowship in the Holy Spirit, they should be agreeing wholeheartedly with each other. The Bible says this way, let us concentrate on those things which promote unity. Trouble is, if we're not careful, we end up focusing on and concentrating on those things that cause division. The skirmishes that we have. Now that doesn't mean that believers have to agree on everything. Instead, each believer should have the mind or the attitude of Christ, which Paul describes at length, as you know, in um, chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. He's telling us there to take charge of your mind. We Christians have the God-given ability to put our minds on those things that build up and to strengthen, to encourage and to help others. Now, Paul gets real specific in verse 3, where he talks about the attitude of unselfish humility. You won't hear that in this culture, in the world. He says here, he says, now guys, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. So don't do those. But he says, on the other hand, in humility, consider others better than yourself. Each of you should not only look to your own interests. Now, it's it's okay to look after your own interests, but don't just leave it there. Like Kimberly said today, don't just feather your own nest. There are others. How can a man who has the worldly goods close his heart off to those who do not? See, each of you should not only look after your own interests, don't neglect that, but also, it's not either or, it's both and. Be careful of either or thinking but also to the interests of others. So a sure cure for selfish ambition, this is the antidote, is appreciative recognition of other people's good qualities and their walk with the Lord. So if you're ever having a tussle with somebody in the same family of God, focus on their good qualities and the fact that they're part of the same body because it's easy, too easy to get caught up in competition and aggressive acquiring and vying for our own rights and our own needs. That is not what Jesus asked us to do. This is a mental choice that we make, a decision not to focus on self, my time, mine, 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 but the other person. It's a servant attitude that the Scriptures are encouraging. Just to be very clear, 
So there's never any misunderstanding what he's getting after. I love the Bible like this. It's so clear. This is how he tells us our attitude, which is what we're focusing on today, should be. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God. See, that's what it's saying. He's equal to God. Jesus is not the second in command. He is God, co-equal with the Father. So, who became, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Well, look at me. Didn't say that. But who instead made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. God always gives grace to the humble and he is opposed to the proud. Life gets hard for prideful people. It's just a matter of time. Being found as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. So Paul is saying here that now it's our turn, our attitude should be the same that was found in Jesus Christ our Lord. Think about this. Jesus deliberately chose a higher significance, to place a higher significance on our needs than his comfort. It would have been very easy to keep out of the battle. But he didn't. He stepped into that battle. He stepped out of his comfort into courageously, into our battle. In humility, he willingly set aside the glory and the comfort of heaven and came to be among us. That is a big step down. Let me say this another way. Often God will ask you to descend into greatness. Descend. Listen to another verse in the same chapter that is sorely needed today and encourages the attitude of positive encouragement. Positive encouragement. Here it is. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. People today sometimes, if they're not arguing about sport, they're arguing about the weather or arguing about some facts over here. And they're splitting hairs all their lives. Fractions. Always trying to get an angle on something. Have you ever noticed how difficult it is to complete one day without falling to the trap of grumbling or complaining or arguing? (laughs) Have you ever set yourself that goal? Today, I am not going to grumble and I'm not going to argue. I'm just going to be content and tie my tongue. Have you ever tried that? (laughs) By about breakfast time, especially if you've got kids, you're about to strangle somebody. It's so easy to pick up the habit of negative thinking. Have you noticed that? Why is that? Because there are many things around us that prompt us to be irritable. Anybody else apart from me found that life isn't always just a bed of roses? There's some tough stuff to go through, right? Now, luckily, a man called Mr. Murphy compiled the list of inescapable laws that make us grumblers and disputers if we let them. You know the old story. There's many of them. I mean, there are thousands of them. A couple of them, just to remind you what this guy sort of sounded like, he said, nothing is as easy as it looks. Everything takes longer than you think. And if anything can go wrong, it will. That is especially true for IT. I've got the T-shirt. Okay. And some people say that Murphy was an optimist, right? (laughs) He says also, a day without a crisis is a total loss. (laughs) Well, Martin, we've had some good wins lately. (laughs) The other line always moves faster than the one you're in. Found that, especially on the freeway. Yeah, I'll move that now, then it slides down. Okay. 
And whatever hits the fan will not necessarily be evenly distributed. <laughs> Each line is a, contains an attitude assassin. Positive encouragement is essential for survival in a world saturated with Murphy's laws. And that's why Paul encourages to overcome grumbling and arguing and complaining and disputing. And how do you do that? Well, you can do that with an attitude of genuine joy. Joy is the underlying theme of Philippians. Actually, the word joy and its derivations occur 12 times in the book. Now, joy, let me be clear about this, is not fickle. Needing lots of things to keep it smiling. That is not joy. Joy is deep and it's consistent. And it's the oil that reduces the friction in life, which would otherwise be like a splinter under your skin. What is true joy? Often happiness is mistaken for joy, but the two are very different. I want to differentiate between the two. Inward joy comes from knowing and trusting God that never changes because God never changes. Circumstances will always change. Happiness, on the other hand, comes as a result of pleasant circumstances. But as you and I both know, we can have a pleasant circumstance and about now later, it can be an unpleasant circumstance, yeah? So happiness depends upon happening. Joy depends upon your long-term view of God. Inward joy is lasting. And we can feel joy in spite of the deepest troubles around us and it holds us steady. Happiness is temporary because it's based on a constantly external changing environment. Now Paul was able to rejoice in spite of his pain. I have been to the prison where Paul spent this time. It's cold, stone, and underground, it's called the Mamertine Prison in Rome. He didn't let his circumstances discourage him. He says here in Philippians 3, Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To remain joyful, we should remind ourselves daily of God's love. Because without it, the world is very bleak, meaningless, and cold. We need to remind ourselves daily of God's love for us and our ultimate life with Him in heaven. That's how we can keep the eye on the long term. He says it here. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown. So stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Rejoice. There's another word again. And the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Then he goes on to say, hey, from jail, chill out. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. See, there's an attitude of gratitude, even though he's in dire circumstances. Let your request be made known to God. And the peace, look at the difference. What happens when you do that? The peace of God, which surpasses, like, I don't understand this. How come I'm feeling so calm in the middle of such a terrible storm? We sung about that this morning. And the peace which of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts. So your hearts won't be assassinated by stinking thinking and negativity. And, and it'll keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So our minds and hearts can be kept free of anxiety as we give the Lord our cares in prayer. By getting rid of the stuff that clogs our minds and drags us down. 
We create space for joy to take its place. So when circumstances that could upset us, maybe at work, maybe you've had an odd circumstance at work that's upset you, or maybe at home, immediately we have a choice to make of what we're going to do, an attitude choice. We can hand the stress over to God or we can roll up our sleeves, mental sleeves, and slug it out. We have a choice. And joy awaits our decision. You have a choice. Now, if we do what Philippians 4 suggests, peace replaces panic. If we do that. If you're panicking too much, have a look at how to get out of this. Joy moves into action. It's ready, but joy isn't pushy. You have a choice. But when we deliberately choose not to stay positive, we deny joy a place in our lives and we usually gravitate to two awful places if we don't choose the right alternative. And here they are. The first alternative we choose is blame. This is the aggressive attitude. We multiply our guilt and we rivet ourselves to the past which we can't change. You can't change your past. The past is the past. So, what a big waste. When we blame ourselves, we rivet ourselves to the past. When we blame God, we cut ourselves off from the very one who can help us. The single source of power. And doubt replaces trust and we put down roots of bitterness that yield cynicism. Now if we blame others, then we enlarge the distance in the relationship we would have with that other person. Because we can only either blame the other person, God or us, right? If we blame other people, we poison relationships. You'll poison relationships. And we settle for much less than God intended. And by the way, you don't find relief. It just is yuck. Until we change. You see, blame never affirms, it assaults. It's your fault. Blame never restores, it just wounds. Blame never solves, it complicates. Blame never unites, which is what God wants. It separates even the best of friends and brothers. Blame never smiles. It's always frowning. Hmm. It's got an attitude problem. Blame never forgives, it rejects. Nah. Blame never forgets. It's always bringing back the past. Blame never builds up, it destroys. Now until we stop blaming, we will never enjoy spiritual and emotional health and happiness in God that He intends to have. Remember, yes, when, you're being, when you're blaming, you're being lame. Be lame. That's what you're doing when you're blaming. And that's never part of God's plan. Where do you ever see Paul do that? Where do you ever see Jesus do that? They are our examples. Jesus, the ultimate one. This was underscored when I, I read the following words this week. One of the most innovative psychologists in the 20th century I had the pleasure of meeting was a man by the name of Bruce Larson, who used to work with my father in the faith, Juan Carlos Ortiz. And he said that he considered there's only one kind of counsellee that he would consider relatively hopeless. And he's seen thousands. Only one kind of counsellee, relatively hopeless. And that's the person who blames other people for their problems. 
his or her problems. He says, if you can own the mess you're in, he says, there's hope for you and there's help available. But as long as you blame others, you'll be a victim for the rest of your life. See, blame backfires and it hurts us more than the object of our resentment. It's like turning, as I said many times, it's like having a shotgun here, turning it around, pulling the trigger, hoping the butt's gonna hurt them. I'm the one that gets hurt most. Now that's the aggressive response, blame. But there is a passive response on the other side, which is just as damaging. In the opposite manner, it's feeling sorry for myself. Self-pity. Things may turn out against us and we feel like we're the recipients of unfair treatment. We neither expected it to happen that way, nor did we actually probably in all justice deserved it that way. But it happened. Now there's a natural tendency when this happens to curl up into a ball and to basically go into this mode, nobody loves me, everybody hates me, poor me. I mean, what else do you do when the world drops out, the bottom drops out of the world? Now forgive me if this sounds too simplistic. This is actually simple, not simplistic. The last thing we often try to do is give that pain, that expectation that we had in somebody else. Here's our problem. We're expecting somebody else to fulfill a position that God can only do. Here's the only, God is always faithful. People are fickle. If you attach your hope to people, you're going to be disappointed. You're going to be let down. You're going to be shattered. The key Young people, listen carefully, is to attach your hope to God, which never moves, which is the firm foundation we sung about. That's why we talk Him as the cornerstone of our lives. His love for us never changes, no matter what happens, no matter what other people say or think or do or don't do. He's, his love is consistent. So if a, yeah. So turn it over to God, the specialist who has never been handed a problem, handed an impossibility that he couldn't handle. Grab that problem by the throat and thrust it upwards to God. Now that familiar, there's a familiar story in the New Testament that makes me smile as we come down to the close of this. Paul and his travelling companion Silas have been beaten. Doesn't sound too good, does it, Desmond? Your eye socket hurts because somebody's giving you an obscure elbow straight up there, that hurts. You've been kicked, you've been whipped, you've been beaten. So it's painful, let's just feel it a minute. Smell the blood, you can smell the blood when that happens. You just nick yourself with a razor, you can smell the blood. It hurts, you're in pain right now, Paul and Silas. And then they've just been thrown in one of these dungeons and these are not like our Mount Eden hotels. It was unfair, they'd done nothing wrong. But this mistreatment did not steal their joy, notice this, or dampen their confidence in God. See, their circumstances could not have been more bleak. They were there to stay and Paul to die. And about midnight, Acts 16.25 says, says this, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns. Wow! And the prisoners were listening to them. I would imagine they would be. Who else is singing in that prison after being smashed and bashed? What the heck's going on? 
The sounds of confident praying and joyful singing are not normally heard in a stone dungeon. But Paul and Silas determined they would not be paralysed by self-pity. And self-pity does stunt your growth, your spiritual growth, your relational growth. And as they sang in their prayer, the unbelievable transpired. Verse 26. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prison was shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everybody's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw the prisoner's door open, he drew a sword that was about to kill himself. Reason? The law said in those days, those prisoners go, your life will be taken. So you didn't want to go through the humiliation of that. And he's about to finish himself off. Supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried, hey, 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 don't do that. We're all here. He cried out with a a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. So with calm reassurance, Paul spoke words of encouragement to that jailer and even promised him that there would be no attempt to escape. Now, if you take time to read the full story, verse 29 through the 40, you'll find how beautifully God used their attitude to change the entire face of their situation. But notice their attitudes. They stand as a monumental reminder of the right attitude choice can literally transform your circumstances no matter how bleak, black or hopeless they look. And best of all, the right attitude becomes contagious since our choice of attitude is so important that our nines need to fuel on these things. Look, if I get on my motorbike and I put in some less than decent fuel or the wrong type of fuel, my bike does not work properly. It does not develop the full 255 horsepower that it should. It'll be making excuses for its lack of performance. Philippians 4.8 gives us a good place to start to get the pure fuel for our minds and attitudes. Here's some food for the right attitude. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's of good repute, if there is excellence, any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. That's great advice. Let your mind dwell on these things. Fix your attention on those six specifics. Now, just there are six of them. Not unreal, far-fetched fantasy, but things that are true and real and anchored in reality and valid. Two, not cheap and flippant and superficial, but things that are honourable, worthy of respect, not things that are wrong and unjust and critical and negative, but that which is right. Not thoughts that are carnal and smutty and obscene, but thoughts that are pure and wholesome. Not things that prompt arguments. Have you? You may have met somebody in the office, you know, it's they just try to goad you. Anybody met people like that? I can see the smirks. Not those things. Not things that prompt arguments and defensiveness in others. They're always provoking. But those are the lovely and agreeable and attractive and winsome. And finally, not slander. That's 
putting other, disparaging another's character. Stand up for that. No. I had to do that this weekend. Not gossip. Don't feed your mind on trash. You wouldn't think about going into a trash can and eating the stuff out of there. So don't imbibe in that with your terminology and words. Not on put downs. Some people live their life by parrying and giving out tons of good put downs. They sound funny, but actually they're just straight out put downs. But information of good report and the kind that builds up. See, the world tears down. Jesus always builds up. And it causes grace to flow. Honest question. Do you do this? Is this a type of food for your mind? And we're back to where we started, aren't we? The choice is yours, what you eat, what you consume. Nobody can make you a certain way. That's strictly up to you. So, how are your attitudes as we finish? May I take the liberty of saying something very directly to you? Because you know I love you. Some of you today who are here and listening to these words on the internet are causing tremendous problems because of your attitude. You are capable, you are intelligent, you are qualified, and you may be even respected for your competence. But your attitude is taking a toll on those who are near to you, those you live with, and those you work with, those you touch in life. For some of you, it's at home, that's the background, where there's a mixture of negativism, sarcasm, constant pressure that you're driving other people with, cutting comments, blame, and sometimes just outright self-pity. Now, others of you have allowed the self-pity to move in under your roof and you have unwisely surrendered mental territory that once was healthy and happy and content and you wonder why you've lost your joy and you're enjoying life less and you probably notice that you're starting to complain more. And if you're honest... You have to feel, you, you, you kind of admit that you feel kind of a little out of tune. You're kind of there, but it's not right in tune. So as your friend, let me urge you today to take charge of your mind and your emotions. Let your mind feast on nutritious food for a change. Refuse to grumble. Refuse to criticise and drag down and reject those alien thoughts that have the potential to make you a petty and bitter person. And why don't we now, as we close, ask God to help you find that joy once again. Let God's joy yield a sweet, winsome melody 
that this world needs to hear. Let's pray. Father, your word is so sharp. You're like a surgeon, Lord. You, by your Holy Spirit, get right to the issues in our lives. Thank you for caring for us so much that you you give us the right way to think, the things to think upon. Thank you for the correction of your word. It's kind of like getting a thought alignment. Our thoughts were out of balance, excessively negative, perhaps excessively self-pitying or excessively blaming others. Father, thank you that your spirit can correct without condemning. Thank you that you love us deeply. Father, today I thank you for the spirit that lives within us. I pray that, Lord, you would help each of us move forward in these areas. May our minds be filled with those things that are lovely and wholesome and true and pure. Father, help us focus on you, we pray. Whose love is constant, whose empowering is always there. Of ourselves, we can do nothing but trust you. But today we made the choice. We want to trust you. Thank you for our time together. And all the people said, Amen. Amen.